Through no fault of their own, an animal may not fit into a home. Many people can't keep their pets for a range of different reasons, which results in a lot being surrendered and in the worst cases, put to sleep. Luckily, many of them can be saved. And in this episode, we meet Eva, who along with her awesome team is looking out for the underdogs. Hello and welcome to Flynn's Talk, episode 17. I am one half of the duo that the co-hostists with the mostest. I'm Jack Levitt and Jeremy Gelman's joining me over Zoom. Jez, welcome. Thank you. I am two halves of the duo. It's always a pleasure to be back. You're the second half. No, you're one half and I'm two halves. <laughs> Fair enough. One of two and two of two. As Exactly right. Ready for your listening <laughs> pleasure. Jez, um, we're slowly covering off all different areas of uh, the animal care world. And another one that we've decided to dive into today is the animal shelter and foster care uh, network, which mm. is which is cool. And I've got a foster, foster ginger cat, Evie, and I've had rescue animals over the um, course of my life. And Is that at Evie the ginger? Well, we tried to get Evie wonderful. I am. And that's taken. Uh, so we actually don't have an Instagram account yet. But you've got one for at Nina Border Terrier. I do have at Nina Border Terrier. She hasn't been so active lately. I think I think COVID sort of put her on the back foot a bit. She'll be losing followers. Yeah, she may be. Maybe we'll have maybe you'll have to have a word to her and she'll start it up again. Get it happening, mate. It's always good to see where, where she is and what she's up to. <laughs> it's gonna be really great today, Jez, to chat to Eva, who's the founder and president of Project Underdog Rescue, um, a rescue charity group that um, looks after uh, grabbing animals who are potentially um, being surrendered or maybe maybe on their way to being euthanized um, and can be saved um, and put into foster care and then adopted out, which is a really special part of the animal care world. Um, and it's going to be good to hear her story and how, how she established that. Exactly right. Let's get into it. Welcome to Flynn's Talk. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm pretty excited to chat with you guys today. So tell us about, firstly, clearly you're an animal lover. Only an animal lover would start um, an animal rescue group, but uh, tell us about the pet lineup at home. Yeah, okay. So at home at the moment, I've just got one, one little pooch. Um, his name is George um, and I rescued him in 2017. So he's about four and a half years old um, and his story... Um, so he was going to be, he was going to be killed pretty much just for the way that he looked. Um, so yeah, not ideal. Um, his behavior in the pound was, was pretty good. Um, I mean, as far as behavior in that sort of situation goes, um, but the pound staff were pretty concerned about, um, him meeting certain, certain guidelines in the restricted breed. So I wasn't going to let that happen. Um, I went there pretty much that afternoon and picked him up and it was, it was meant to just be a little foster. He was going to get adopted. Um, but, yeah, I fell in love. <laughs> That's great. The rest is history. What sort of dog? He's an American Staffy. And, I mean, he does have some of his own challenges that I'm still working through. He's he's not super confident around other dogs, um, which is it's probably a blessing in disguise for me because then I don't really end up with this huge menagerie here. <laughs> You've had quite an incredible pathway to where you are now, and we'll delve into... Um, Project Underdog a bit later in the episode, but I think it's important to go right back to the beginning for where this started for you. And and you've obviously been an animal lover for a long time, but 
during high school, you, you weren't actually okay and you identified that and, and it actually took you some time to realize what you were working through. Take us back to that time at a young age where um, you weren't having a great time of it. Yeah. Um, so I suffered, I suffered a lot of um, social anxiety in my teens. I mean, it, it probably started much earlier than that, but, you know, I can vividly remember it in my teens and, you know, I'd make excuses to avoid social events. I'd make plans and then cancel at the last minute. Um, you know, I'd go to parties and then I'd freak out once I'd get there and call my mum and be like, you need to come and pick me up now. Um, and I didn't really understand why I couldn't cope with those in those settings. Like it was, it was very isolating for me. Um, then in year 10, it really, it really started to spiral. Um, so I was avoiding pretty much all social settings at lunchtime. I would hide in the toilet cubicle so that I didn't have to speak to people. Um, I started begging my parents to let me stay home from school. I started skipping school. Um, and I completely withdrew, lost all my friends. Um, and then I ended up dropping out of school completely. So the next sort of maybe six to nine months, I was seeing all different um, mental health care professionals and really coming to terms with and understanding my anxiety disorder and what was causing all these issues for me. Um, and, you know, looking back, I'm just, I'm so thankful that my parents allowed me that opportunity, like dropping out of school was a pretty big deal. Um, but to really have that time to work through it and for them to stick with me um, during that time was a saving grace. And was it something you say your parents were a big part of that? Was it something that was sort of like there was wraparound supports for you? Was like your parents in the school working together to find your help? Was like this was still a little while ago now? How did how did that sort of look? Yeah, not a whole lot of support from the school. Um, I went to a, to an all girls school, and that has its own challenges in itself. Um, but, and I think, you know, it was difficult for my parents to understand what was going on with me. You know, I was, I was lashing out and I was getting really frustrated and annoyed with them. Um, but it was, it was my GP that recognised that it was anxiety and then put me in touch with the, you know, with the necessary mental health care workers to start, start working through it. So you eventually found your way back to school? Yeah. Yep. So... Worked through it that year and then I ended up repeating year 10. Um, I finished off finished off high school. Um, but then after high school finished, I my anxiety started to creep back in. Um, I think I, I didn't have a purpose anymore. You know, I wasn't distracted with school and VCE. Um, and my friends were going off to uni. They sort of had, they knew what they wanted to do or they were traveling and I was completely lost. So I ended up getting this job at an insurance claims, um, as an insurance claims consultant at an insurance company. Um, and I was working there for about 18 months until one day, I don't, I don't really know what the trigger was, but I think, you know, I understand now that it was probably a mental breakdown. Um, but I decided that I couldn't cope um, with speaking to any of my colleagues that day. Um, so to avoid speaking to them or having them come up to me, I decided to put my um, my phone at work on available. So I was taking calls, call after call. You know, usually we'd take a call, write some notes, um, have a break. I didn't have a break at all. I took call after call all day for nine hours. And then at the end of the day, I realised I had written all these call notes on the wrong 
on the wrong files. Um, none of my notes made any sense. I'm such a perfectionist that I was just completely mortified by that. And I got home and I said to my mum, I'm never going back there. I've got to quit. Um, so I did. And I cut myself off from all my colleagues, didn't didn't tell them where I'd gone, what had happened. Um, and then, yeah, the next six to 12 months was a bit of a blur for me. Um, I was having panic attacks every day. I couldn't leave my house. Like just to go to the mailbox was a huge effort for me. And then at the same time, dad was diagnosed with cancer. So I was sort of dealing with that as well. I was back to square one, had to start working on my anxieties again. Um, I went back to my GP and we started working through it um, so that I could get to a place where I was functioning, I was able to function in society again because I just wasn't at that stage. Um, and then I went to a psych session and my psych was like, you know, you talk a lot about animals. Have you ever thought about working with them? And I was like, light bulb, um, no, but that's a great idea. And once I've got an idea in my head, I'm all guns blazing. So next day I'm like enrolled in a cert two in animal studies um, and yeah, loved it, um, completed the course and then got a job straight away as a vet, as a trainee vet nurse, um, which was pretty awesome. You've seemingly found the thing that, that you'd been looking for, the thing, your purpose and, and a career, a line, like a line of work to get into. How are you feeling now? Like, yeah, super excited. Like I have, I've got purpose again and, and I've found something that I'm actually passionate about. So yeah, my first week at work was pretty extreme. I reckon it was probably only a couple of days in when I was faced with this ethical dilemma. So a four-month-old puppy came into the clinic. It had eaten a packet of Nurofen tablets um, and, yeah, it needed hospitalisation. It needed fluid therapy. Um, and we did all of that. The client came back, paid the, the bill, and then sort of decided, nah, this is, this is going to be too hard. This dog's going to eat things again. It's a troublemaker. Just put him to sleep. And that was the first time that I'd ever been confronted with convenience killing. You know, someone killing their animal or killing an animal um, because it was, it, was, it was seemingly too hard. What was also concerning for me at the time was that nobody else in the clinic really seemed to care or didn't know what to, didn't know what to do maybe and I was like really no one's no one's going to speak up for this puppy um I guess it's going to have to be me and that was it that was a super a super difficult decision for me to make because I had just got this dream job and you know getting into vet nursing as a trainee is is really challenging um there's everyone wants to do it right um so was I going to speak up for this puppy and potentially save its life at the risk of losing my, my dream job and then potentially facing no purpose and anxiety all over again? But, yeah, I said to my boss, what about if I take it home that night? I'll look after it for one night. I'll see if I can find an alternative. Um, if I can't, so be it. Um, at, least I've given it a, at least I've given it a shot. So I went home. Mum was like, oh, my God, you brought an animal home. This is, this is going to be nuts. Um, and then called around, emailed a few different organisations, finally found, found someone that, that could take him. I mean, he was a health, he was a little four-month-old puppy. It was 
he was healthy enough now that we'd got him through through the Nurofen saga. And I got to work thinking, yes, you know, I'm going to be the hero here. Um, and told my boss, yep, I found somewhere. And he was like, oh, okay, well, you're going to have to tell the owner of this puppy that we're not actually going to put it to sleep. Um, he was a little bit, yeah, a bit strange about it. So I called the owner. The owner, um, yeah, he was pretty, pretty wrapped. He didn't have to pay to have his dog euthanized anymore. So that was a win for him. And then a week later, I got this email from um, from the practice owner saying that you're no longer required. Bring back your scrub top. Um, you're not working here anymore. That's it. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. Yep. Probably didn't want someone so outspoken there. I guess. Not. I'm not entirely sure what what the deal was, but yeah, I was back to square one yet again. And that's it. Like first 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 week in, you you're sort of tossing that up whether whether to make waves, whether to save this animal's life or to or to let it or to let it pass and then to have that thrust upon you for for ultimately most would say making the right decision was that sort of was that something that led you down the path of the rescue groups was that or did that sort of did that um did that want to want you to quit altogether how did how did that sort of feel at the time yeah no that's such a good question um it really ignited this fire in my belly and I was like yeah, you know, I stood up for this dog um, and I, I, I saved its life and that was exhilarating. So, yeah, I sort of had this new lease on life. I wasn't, af- I wasn't afraid to speak anymore. Um, I could ruffle some feathers. And I guess that's one of the reasons with, with Project Underdog, um, one of our values is, is courage. And I always encourage our volunteers and our team to just to be brave and feel empowered to speak up um, you know, take risks, challenge the status quo. I'm all about that. I think that's such a great thing. Like you talk about empowerment and you you see these dogs, these cats, these animals, and they're they're really the the most disempowered things you could find. They've been left for nothing. They've their owners have either either left them or mistreated them or whatever it has been. And and for someone to come along and to give them a new life and to and to give them to love is is an excellent thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's definitely when it all started for me, um, in terms of rescue. Um, so after that I started, um, volunteering for other rescue organizations and volunteering in shelters, um, fostering animals. Um, and yeah, that's sort of sparked, sparked project underdog, I guess. I think I can also sort of I can relate to where these animals have come from as well. You know, I've had my own challenges um, and I think we just need to have a little bit more of an understanding on an animal's mental health as well as, as people. And I guess the number one cause of euthanasia or surrender is behavioural issues. So if we can just understand that a little bit better um, and be a little bit more compassionate, then maybe we can we can save some more animals that... Um, I just misunderstood. Yeah, for sure. So that's where that 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 was your first um, foster, really, the little whippet. But from there, like you obviously didn't build it to be what it is overnight. So um, you continued to work as a vet nurse, right? And and found other employment to keep you going to make sure that you know you keep the lights on and all of that. How did you navigate through that, where you were then working, seeing what you're seeing, and also on the side, kind of got this 
amazing, you know, little side project going that's evolved. And and how did that work in with the people around you that you're working with? You know, like were they responsive? Are they like, oh God, here's the rescue girl again? Like it takes <laughs> it is a bit like that. Take us along that next couple of years as it as it speeds up and um, gains momentum. So I was volunteering um, for a couple of rescue organisations, and I sort of found that there was still a fairly significant number of animals. Um, either being returned to the rescue or the rescuer having to put them to sleep. Um, and that may have been through, you know, like a lack of education or the pressure of feeling like they needed to move these animals on quickly, um, whether there was a, you know, downfall in their adoption processes. I don't really know, but I sort of felt like I can do something for these animals that are being put in that too hard basket. Um, they've already gone through so much to get to this point that I don't ever want them to feel displaced or abandoned again. Um, and we know that the number one cause of surrender or euthanasia is the behaviour issues. So I thought let's let's start an organisation that focuses on that and that has skilled professionals in that area, um, and we can really we can really build on that. I love that. And so where does it start? Where do you get the momentum? How do you how do you start getting the word out there? Started the charity. We did a um, we did a crowdfunding campaign. So me and a couple of other girls shared just shared the campaign around different Facebook groups. And yeah, got got a few people behind us and managed to raise the funds that we needed. Um, ended up rescuing six dogs from this pound in New South Wales without ever meeting them. I'm looking back on it now. Oh, that was reckless. Um, I would never do something <laughs> like that again. Courage, though, right? But I mean, it got us it got us off the ground. Rescuing six dogs in one hit is is pretty massive. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> yeah, and. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was working as a vet nurse during the time, doing my traineeship, um, finished that off and then got promoted as a practice manager um, and then had that challenge to face. So you're kind of like ticking along, going pretty well and you get promoted, right? You're probably not used to being promoted ever because you, <laughs> from where you were coming from, you're probably like, well, why me? Yeah. But what kind of like... Why did you say yes to that and then take us through what the challenges of being a practice manager, I imagine, are huge? I guess I love a challenge. So I, I put myself forward for the, for the job. I really wanted to be able, I thought that I could really make a difference in the industry as well, um, being in a practice management position. Um, you know, working as a vet nurse is stressful and emotional enough, but then being a practice manager, is, it adds this whole new layer of stress. Um, Particularly, I put a lot of, of pressure on myself to be successful as well. So a lot of that comes from, from internal pressure. And yeah, you're being pulled in different directions. You've got to manage the different components of the business. You know, you've got your patients, which is why you got into the industry in the first place. Then you've got to manage your team members. And, you know, they were always my number one priority. Um, then you've got your clients and then you've got upper management as well, which I worked for a corporate um, vet clinic. So I had that aspect um, as well. And, you know, by this stage in my life, I've got um, solid values. Um, I know what I'm passionate about now and I wasn't going to compromise on anything. So, you know, having upper management talk about profit margins and budgets and your cost of sales. It was difficult for me to, to manage both aspects. You have to consider that there are shareholders and, and business people 
who are financially invested in this clinic. But I guess no matter how hard you work, if you're not meeting budgets, then they're not going to be happy. And that's the harsh, the harsh reality of it. It is, it is a business. And if it's not profitable, then it's not going to be sustainable. But I felt like we, we didn't need to run people into the ground to get there. You know, there's there's a different way to go about it. And fighting that battle for me was was quite exhausting. You know, I carried a bit of a heavy burden that I needed to to fight for change and I needed to shelter these training nurses that were coming through, these new grad vets from from the burnout that I've seen and you know that I was experiencing too. They were like my my children, you know, I'd protect them to the end of the earth. So, I mean, it taught me a lot about running a business, what to do, what not to do, the type of culture that I would want for my own organisation. But yeah, I guess in the end, I couldn't run the clinic the way that that I wanted to or the way that that I felt comfortable with. So yeah, I made the difficult decision to leave and I left on my terms when I was ready, not like I'd left other jobs in the past. and really, it was like having the weight of the world lifted off my shoulders when I left. I haven't looked back. Well, it sounds like you had the weight of the industry sort of sitting on your shoulders <laughs> while you were working there. Yeah, it's probably, yeah, I probably put it on myself a bit, to be fair. I think we've come to understand, um, I guess, the business side of veterinary care and that it is a commercialised field. Um, I'm we're fortunate living in Australia that I can go in and if I injure myself or I'm in some sort of accident, I can I can go to hospital, I can get a scan, I can get medication, I can get whatever I need within reason. Um, I can also opt to pay for something if I want to get something fixed, but um, that doesn't exist in the animal field and, and businesses are running under a commercial model um, with, with immense pressure, as you say, from stakeholders and the like, which, which in turn is where this kind of crazy cycle comes in of, people providing veterinary care, getting some backlash from clients about being too expensive. And I can just sort of start to formulate a little bit of the picture, not even have never even worked anywhere near the field, but I just start to picture where you might have been standing and kind of being pulled in different directions. And well done to you for the pride you clearly take in looking after others and yourself uh, and making that decision to to push the eject button and leave because you, you're now not even in the in the veterinary field as a practicing nurse um, for a job, right? I am a little bit. So Project Underdog um, has a little bit of a a side hustle, I suppose. Um, We, yeah, we run uh, a mobile vet clinic. Um, So sort of come to a bit of a halt with COVID. Um, But that gives me that little bit of vet nursing that I love, but, you know, just in in a little piece. Um, So, yeah, I still, I still, sort of still there. And so when you left your job, was that was that sort of the kickstarted the kickstart you needed to go full time into Project Underdog or did you get a bit disheartened by that and and take a bit of a back foot? What what happened from there? Yeah, so that was just earlier this year I I resigned. Um and the idea was yeah that we were going to go full steam ahead with Project Underdog Rescue. Um we obviously COVID happened and things needed to change. So we did a we did a crowdfunding campaign in June, um, and we raised almost fifty thousand dollars in the end, which was an amazing effort. And we had we had a few sponsors, so Save a Life and uh, Lush Charity Pot. Um, so we were really lucky to get those grants from them. And yeah, I guess the the idea was that we were going to um, rent a place. It was going to be our headquarters. We'd be able to do things like short term emergency boarding for animals. So whether they've 
we get a call and that animal needs needs a place that night. Um, at the moment, we can't really do that. We can't. We don't have foster care. Foster care is just waiting on standby. So um, it would just be short term, and then we'd have um, veterinary consult uh, consults. So um, at the moment, we're doing mobile consults, but we'd be able to push that to the headquarters. Um, animal training classes like puppy school, um, behaviour consults. Um, volunteer inductions, community education seminars, and we've also got our online shop. So at the moment that's all in in my house. So it would be good to move that to to the one central location. Your, your model is to put animals into foster care and into a loving environment. Talk us through the decision to set it up that way. And I actually just recently rescued um, a cat, Evie the Ginger, who's had a couple of mentions on the podcast. And she came from a, from a foster home where they had a similar model. But um, I'm interested to hear from you as to why, I mean, there's some practical reasons for why, but why why did that feel like the right way to go about it for your group? Yeah, I guess first off, we don't have the money for a shelter. but Expensive, in, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think especially for Project Underdog, you know, we take on animals that have pretty complex behavioural or medical uh, issues going on. So for us, a lot of the animals that we rescue wouldn't cope in a shelter environment. Um, the noises and the smells and, and dogs are really social animals. They need to be with people. For our animals to succeed, the best way is to be in, in a loving foster home. Essentially, that's they're going to get adopted. They're going to be in a home. So um, we can make that transition a little bit smoother for them if, we've, if we're setting them up for success in, in the foster program. And we learn so much more about the animal's personality there. We can provide them with the resources that they need to succeed, whether that be, again, behavioural or medical. The foster model is something that I'm super passionate about and I think that all pounds and shelters should also be looking into that. I mean, there's there's always going to be a need for a shelter and a pound. It's not to say that that shouldn't happen. It, it does. It needs to. Um, but there are, there are other options out there as well. Is it fair to say that those those pounds and shelters in the physical sense can become more of, I suppose, um, centralised or become more of kind of a triage point to then feed out to groups like yourself. Is that is that something fair to aim for, or is that have I got that a bit 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 around back to front? No, no, I think I think definitely. Um, you know, there's there's stray animals. People sometimes can't continue caring for their animal, and they need a place to go straight away. Um, foster takes a little bit of a while you know we need to make sure that we've got a suitable home we need to set that foster care up as well we need to do a little bit of induction um so there's definitely a need for it um but yeah I like I like that idea I like where you're going with that and is it a difficult thing not having that physical space is it a difficult thing to find people who are willing to foster do you have do you have like a a list of people you can count on or or are you always or are you always finding that you sort of trying to get that next person to to put this animal into foster care with? Yeah, it, it's a difficult one. It's challenging for foster carers as well, you know, fostering an animal, especially with challenges, and then seeing them go off to their adoptive home. Um, a lot of the time foster carers end up foster failing, so um, they'll, they'll end up adopting their pet, which is lovely, um, but it's, it's not so great for us. Then um, we've got to go through the process again. The thing that sort of sets us apart from other organisations is that we, we're not at all driven by numbers. So we are a quality over quantity rescue. We'll never take on more than 
than what we can um, cope with. And I think that also helps with our own mental health that we're not, we're not overdoing it. I suppose that requires you as well to be pretty strategic as well with the animals that you do take, right, and, and who you place them with. But how can people, like how do you become a foster carer what, and, and how could people get in touch with you if they were interested or are you, are you open to new carers? Like how does that work as well in terms of the landscape for, for people wanting to be a part of it? Yeah, no, you're right. You raise a good point. We do need to be fairly strategic. And like I mentioned earlier, I do like structure and um, we do have some solid processes now um, that are in place and we, um, we know that they work. So we really, we stick true to those processes. Um, in terms of foster carers, we are always looking for, for new foster carers. Just jump online, jump on the Project Underdog website, fill out an application. Look, our applications are fairly extensive as well because we are taking on these animals that have, you know, some, some complex issues going on. Um, we need to make sure that the foster carers are, are suitable. We'll do a phone screen, um, interview the foster carer, and then we'll go out and do a property check, make sure everything's safe and secure. Um, and then, yeah, we'll place an animal with them. But um, I think it's important that people are just patient with us as well because we, aren't, we, don't, take, we don't have a huge amount of animals coming through the doors. Um, so it, do, it does take a little bit of time to place them. Is that the same sort of process if someone wanted to adopt an animal? Do, you, do, do they go through the fostering first and then look to adopt or, or do you have people adopting straight away? So some people will foster with you to adopt. Um, we do offer that as a, as a service, I suppose. But yes, um, majority of people will apply for a dog that we've advertised for adoption. Um, they'll go through a similar process, probably even more um, extensive. The animals really rely on us to get it right for them. You know, these animals have already been displaced once before. Um, so we all take that responsibility really seriously. So we will have extensive application processes and we do phone screen. Um, we'll do an in-person meet and greet with all members of the household there, including um, the foster carer and a case manager. Um, we don't just leave our foster carers to sort it out themselves. And then, yeah, again, we've got the property check on that as well. We've got check-ins afterwards, the handover period Sorry, I should have mentioned the handover first. We also um, provide them with an extensive adoption handbook that's got information about what to expect from your animal when you've adopted them. Um, we've got recommendations on professionals that, that we know and would recommend or will use ourselves. So there's a lot of support post-adoption as well. And is that something that, that COVID's had an impact on? Have you still been able to do that in the last sort of six months? Yeah, it's... It's been a little bit difficult. Um, we've had to change to virtual property checks and virtual meet and greets, which isn't ideal. Um, but we're also quite happy to have our foster animals in, in foster care as long as they're needed. Um, and if that means we have to wait till restrictions ease, then we will so that we can do those checks that, that we need to for those animals. Because there has sort of been a big, uh, a big sort of jump for people looking for animals and maybe for the wrong reasons, maybe for the right reasons. But yeah, I mean, Jack's Jack's the uh, best case in point. He went out and and got a cat where I don't know if he really should have gotten one. Oh, oh no, no, no! <laughs> I joke. He's he's a loving he's a loving fur father. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Am I right in saying you had your own Evie that you adopted? And and I want yeah. to talk about the the people and pets in distress program part of your group that you work on. And um, I know you mentioned that your dad passed away in 2017, mm -hmm. um, which is, that was, I was sorry to hear 
that his cancer battle came to an end. And yeah. you said that um, Evie, your own Evie, came and rescued you. Yeah, she did. So dad passed away in, in March and I didn't have a dog um, at the time and um, Evie came along. So I got, a, I got an email from a pound. Um, we need a, we need a palliative foster home. Um, so I was like, yep, let's, let's do that. Um, she was again, like George was just meant to be fostered, um, by me. And then, um, she was just the most loving dog and such a comfort for me at a time, you know, that when I really needed it. So yeah, I always say that she rescued, I didn't rescue her. She rescued me a hundred percent. Um, she was only with me for three months, but, um, yeah, I, I cherish that time so much. And I guess that did sort of spark the idea of, of this program that, that we launched again, things got put on hold because of COVID because we aren't, we don't take on a lot of animals, right? So often there's times when we have to say no to pounds and shelters um but we won't turn our back completely so we'll offer other resources and yeah we're implementing new programs so that we can um take more of a grassroots approach and and um help from both angles not just rescue but try and keep pets in their homes in the first place so people and pets in distress was born and understanding that pets play such a vital role in our physical and our mental well-being. Um, we wanted to assist people that were experiencing hardship. Um, so whether that be financial hardship, illness, physical or mental, um, you know, they're fleeing domestic violence, they're adversely affected by um, a disaster, unexpected death in the family, whatever it, whatever it may be, um, we want to provide support for those people that are experiencing adversity. So people and pets in distress helps by three, we've got three different um, services that we offer through that program. So emergency vet care. Um, so that'll be when an animal needs life-saving emergency surgery um, and their caregivers, for whatever reason, can't afford the full cost of treatment. Um, and that pet might either suffer or be euthanized or surrendered um we'll step in there um basic pet care packages so if people just are, you know acutely affected by something and they need support with pet food or parasite prevention um we'll step in with that um and the other one which um i'm super passionate about is pet care in the home so this is for people who can't leave their home whether it's a disability or you know maybe they don't have transport um so we'll go there feed their animals for them walk enrich enrich their cat's life um change litter trays administer medications whatever it might be um so I'm really keen to get that going again after restrictions lesson. And is and is this program all run by volunteers? So our entire charity is, is run by unpaid volunteers. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm so lucky to have such an awesome team. A lot of them are skilled in particular areas. areas sorry. So we've got um, Tom, our vice president, who's just fitting, finishing up his um, dog behaviour course through the Delta Institute. So they... They teach humane, force-free methods, which is obviously something that we're super passionate about. Um, and then we've got some people that, that um, work in fundraising, um, some people that work in 
accounting um, and then we've got just a whole bunch of volunteers that are happy to travel all over Victoria at short notice. Um, we've got some volunteers that make items for us to sell. One of our volunteers at the moment is making face masks, which is pretty awesome. So, yeah, everyone really, really plays their part. The best medicine for us is getting those happy updates from our adopters. That's really the fuel that keeps us all going. The other thing uh, I was reading about on your website and and I'm keen to hear more about, um, you hold a fear-free certificate. What does that mean? Like you don't have fears and you can bungee jump and skydive or <laughs> talk <laughs> us through that. So... <laughs> I need one of them. <laughs> so funny you said that because one of um one of the girls that I work with, um, she got her fear free certification as well, and um, you get a little get a little badge, and it came in the mail, and her mum opened the mail, and she was like, "Oh, fear free? Does this mean that you're not scared of dogs now?" <laughs> um. So no. Um, so fear-free is, or fear-free, low-stress handling, all these sort of terms are um, initiatives that were started by behaviour vets. Um, so fear-free was started in the USA by Marty, Dr. Marty Becker and low-stress handling um, was started by Dr. Sophia Yin, um, who tragically um, lost her life um, a few years ago. Um, so I guess animals are... They're legally recognised as sentient beings now in New, in New Zealand. We know that they can experience um, both positive and negative emotions, including pain and distress. So um, I think vets already have to know so much from a medical point of view. Um, you know, they're a GP, a dermatologist, they're all these sort of things. It's hard to also then be, you know, a counsellor. And, and the way I see it is that vet nurses and um, animal, other animal healthcare professionals like trainers and behaviorists um, need to be really the um, emotional well-being advocates for the pets and really champion that cause. Unfortunately, in the vet industry, there is this get it done approach, um, and sometimes those methods are, are quite inhumane. Um, sitting on a dog to give it a vaccine or scruffing a cat, um, it's its not necessary um, and it can actually have really long-term negative side effects for their emotional health. I mean, I guess I look at it like us going to the dentist. A lot of people have fears of going to the dentist, right? And if we were to take our child or, or if we were to go to the dentist and the dentist assistant then tied us to the chair um, and forced that drill in our mouth, um, we're going to be traumatised, right? And next time we go to the dentist... I would be fighting my way out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, from an animal's point of view, it's it would be pretty traumatic. And the next time you go there, that animal is then going to be more on guard. They've got this negative association with the vet clinic now. Um, so, yeah, it's sort of giving, allowing them to have some sort of control and choice in the, in the process. Um, a lot of the times we don't need to use force. Um, it's just a, a, a habit and a go-to um, and we just need to take a step back and look at it from the animal's point of view. And this, is this a change that you're noticing in the industry? It sounds like it's a sort of fairly, fairly new term and a fairly recent thing. Is it, is it something that's being sort of widely implemented yet? I think it's, it, there's still a long way to go. Um, Animal animal health is always, you know, the last to get all the advancements, I suppose. Um, so I'm really passionate about educating not just people in the vet industry but also our adopters and our foster carers and our volunteers about it. Um, 
and really starting a movement on, on the fear-free side of things um, because it, it does, you know, eventually some of these animals that we're traumatising in the vet clinic end up um, at a shelter or, you know, worse, they're, they're killed. So um, if we can have more of a collaborative approach between our vet staff and the owners and animal professionals, then then we can help some more animals. So if there's people in the industry listening, what's what's sort of the best way of them to go about learning more about it? Yeah. Um, so jump on Fear Free, um, Fear Free Pets or Low Stress Handling, just, just Google those terms and get yourself educated about it. I think it's great for vet nurses especially. And then um, start to implement little things in the clinic and um, you'll see what a difference it can make. Um, you know, you, you gain the trust of the owners. Um, you're strengthening the, the human-animal bond. You're creating more manageable, cooperative patients in the vet clinic. It's a more, it's a safer, more efficient work environment, um, improves job satisfaction. Like there's all these great things that it can offer um, and, and it's still good for all those things are great for business too so um, I think we just need to remember that they're having a hard time they're not giving us a hard time I like what you're saying there because with that uh, a change in the way that animals have an experience in a clinic and seeing a vet and seeing a nurse means that hopefully we're lessening the impact of, of their own mental health and anxieties you know when we know that animals get surrendered because they might have accidentally bitten someone and, and they've gone to that boundary line where they're potentially acting a little bit too much like a dog um, and, you know, heaven forbid they've bitten bitten a kid or something like that. But um, it feels like with this approach uh, that you're talking about, it just makes it hopefully all, all a bit of a better experience from end to end and, and we're less likely to see those extra surrenders coming forward for someone saying, well, I've got to hand my dog over because it, it bit someone. I guess I think we as animal healthcare professionals need to be aware of the signs and be able to read animals' body language and then um, educate the clients as well on the signs that we're seeing and what's going on with their animal there. So you've you've lived a hell of a journey and you're still on it. Um, you've set up an amazing organisation with Project Underdog and you're holding down a full-time job. How, how are you managing your own headspace and how do you put boundaries in place? Are you good at it? Are you bad at it? Like how do, how do you make sure you're looking after yourself and, and um, first as well? Yeah, still it's still a process. Um, I think number one, I've found a, a workplace that is super supportive of my passion. Um, you know, I'm a big believer in people's first, numbers second. Um and investing in people and, and nurturing them and allowing them to become the best versions of themselves. And that's what I've got now in this workplace. Um, so that, that definitely helps. In terms of me personally, um, having, having a passion and having a purpose has helped massively with, with my own mental health struggles. I think I'm not ashamed of it anymore. I used to be really ashamed of it and didn't want to talk about it and tried to hide it. And I understand it more now. You know, I see it as like a superpower. Um, and when I feel an, a panic attack coming on, because I do, I still get them occasionally, um, I will I'll lean into it rather than fear it. And and that is is super helpful for me. Yeah, well said. And, and uh, we know that these things don't, have a really definitive start and end and and it's a journey that you're on and continue to work through and I think that it's important for you to be 
well, you're obviously very good at looking back internally and giving a lot of yourself to others. Um, so commend you for that and the great work that you're doing. And it's always so great to hear when a workplace supports a passion um, away from what is your core, your core employment. And I can definitely say that about where I work um, and the people that I work with and they allow me to do this and all the other crazy <laughs> and wonderful things. Um, and I think that's yeah. that's a really good place to be in. Definitely. And you're going to give them your all as well, aren't you? Like Exactly. Um, you, you, yeah, like I said, you're going to be the best version of yourself if you've got that support around you. So before you go, where can people find out more? Mm. Where can they see who's up for adoption? And where can they give their dollars? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, this year has been so tricky for us. Um, I was looking back at some financial reports um, earlier in the week and we're down about $45,000 this year. So last year we were um, yeah, at about $50,000 in fundraising and this year we're sitting at 5000 so far. So we've really had to change the way that we fundraise. Um, so if, if there's anyone out there that, you know, wants to sponsor us or um, volunteer for us, just just spread the word about, about what we do, um, you know, I'd be... I'd be super grateful i guess we just need to keep getting the message out there um so yeah jump on the website follow us on our socials get in touch i'm always happy for a chat and yeah well it's certainly a worthy cause and hopefully our little chat today has done a small part in helping you helping you spread your message and helping people find you no thank you i'm yeah i'm really thankful to have the opportunity to tell my story and in such a way that you guys made me feel so comfortable. Um, hopefully it can help someone too. Definitely. Jez, I learned uh, heaps from from that chat with Eva and I think that you certainly are aware that that people are out there and, and looking after animals that, that need a new home and, and we know that some just get lost and find their way to a pound and, and from there um, don't find another home unless someone fosters them or, or adopts. Um, but it was great to hear Eva's perspective on someone who's been in the clinic side as a nurse and then has transferred that knowledge out um, to try and help with some change and, and just help animals in need and kind of giving them a voice. It's also great to see that when someone has that sort of that passion to help animals and and to and to see them being given a good life, that that amazing things can come from it. And case in point, her her rescue group is is doing really truly wonderful things. Project projectunderdogrescue.org.au is the website. Mm. Um, you can jump on there. The website's awesome actually, Jez, and has an online store, T-shirts and hoodies. Um, there's also a, a whole lot of uh, toys, enrichment toys and um, and the like on there as well that you can jump on and buy um, and everything that Eva sells through that store. Yep. Um, proceeds go into helping her mission, which is great. You can also donate. Um you can ask uh, for a fundraising kit to, to pop in your business or, or clinic and it doesn't have to be a vet clinic. Um, it can be any any business. Um, we all know people are quite giving when it comes to furry creatures. Exactly. <laughs> um, so jump on there and have a look and uh, uh, jump on and give them a like and a follow on Facebook as well. Um, of course, we heard Eva's story from the start and she's had her own challenges and struggles along the way, which was quite open about, Jez, and, and many others might be experiencing challenges of their own. Um, it's important to to know where to go if you do need help or if someone that you know needs help and, and where you can find out more information. That's exactly right. Often often these sort of things can bring up stuff in you which 
which can make it a bit hard. So it's always good to know what sort of support services there are out there. Um, as always, there's Beyond Blue and Are You OK, which have wonderful resources on their site. There's Kids Helpline and Headspace if you're under 25. If you are in a crisis or if you feel like you need urgent help, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. There's the Suicide Callback Service or else if it is an emergency, please call triple zero. Well said, mate. And yeah, all those services are accessible at the end of our fingertips and via the phone and uh, there's even telehealth now so you don't even have to leave your home if you're not feeling like you you can so um, just know that all that stuff's out there. Jez, appreciate your time and um, contribution to the podcast and the conversation. It's been another cracker and we've only got a couple more to go. Um, There's still a couple more of exciting episodes to come up and um, look forward to rounding out the season and uh, I will be speaking to you very soon. Lovely. I always look forward to it. 